So let's hear the word of the Lord this morning. Revelation 20, reading verses 1 to 6. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshiped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. As far as the reading of God's word, let's pray and ask his blessing and clarity upon it. Heavenly Fathers, we come to your word once again, Lord. We are reminded that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And we're reminded that every word that comes through your mouth is profitable for instruction, for correction, for building up, for training us in righteousness. So Lord, as controversial, as confusing as, as this word is, we need it. So help us to understand it, to see it, and to live in light of it. Lord, we pray for a humble orthodoxy when it comes to understanding the more contested parts of your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Do you ever get frustrated? Now, you don't have to answer that question because I already know the answer. Of course you do. Probably frequently. To be frustrated is to be human. To be human is to experience frustration. We get frustrated because we frequently run into the situation where we make plans We have expectations, and it does not equal the reality that unfolds later on. We get frustrated, for example, in sports and activities because we planned on hitting this beautiful shot that would impress onlookers, that would give joy to our hearts, and then what happens in reality is an ugly shot that embarrasses us, and we wonder why we ever spent any money on this dumb sport. Or we get frustrated with other people because we had expectations that they were going to show up that they were going to come through, that they were going to complete a task and help. And yet it didn't come to fruition. They didn't do that. And we get frustrated with ourselves because we had promised and purposed to be more disciplined, to overcome that struggle, to bite our tongue and not say that thing to that person. And yet here we are again, having to eat humble pie. We get frustrated. But let me flip the question. Does God ever get frustrated like we do? Does God share this attribute and experience of frustration with us? Well, I would argue that this is another area where we see the grand distinction between creator and creature. Frustration is as common of an experience to us as it is foreign to the Lord. Unlike us, God has never encountered an obstacle that he cannot overcome. He has never made a promise that he cannot keep. And he has never devised a plan that he cannot bring to full fruition. God exists 
in a state of holy unfrustratedness, if that is a word. It's something we don't even know how to fathom because we don't exist in that state. And yet, with us in our frustratedness and God in his holy unfrustratedness, this knowledge is meant to be a stabilizing and shock-absorbing truth for our life. Think of, think of shock absorbers on a car. Shock absorbers exist so that when terrain is rough and bumpy and could affect your car, the shock absorbers are there to embrace that impact. God's unfrustratedness is there so that when we go through our frustrations, we can rest on that shock absorbing reality. When our circumstances and the condition of the world and our outlook for the future are conspiring to be a major source of frustration for us, we are to, call, we are to recall to mind that it is not a source of frustration for the Lord. And this brings us to our passage in Revelation 20. Revelation 20, contrary to popular opinion, is not written to divide Christians. It is written to give believers confidence that nothing in all of creation can frustrate the purposes and promises of God from coming to pass. So there there are four sections in Revelation 20. We're going to deal with two of them. But in each of these sections in Revelation 20, there is a situation, a circumstance, or an obstacle that from our human vantage point could look like something that could frustrate the purposes and promises of God. And yet each section is given to us to show us how what we view as a possible obstacle for the Lord, in fact, is not that. And it cannot frustrate the purposes and promise of God who is going to make all things new, who is going to bring the new creation reality to pass. And so first, we're gonna look at verses one to three. So in verses one to three, from our perspective, we might think that surely the craftiness and cruelty, the, the power and schemes of our great spiritual enemy could frustrate the purposes of God, could frustrate the mission of the church. And you know, there's two errors we don't want to commit when it comes to our, our spiritual enemy. We don't want to underestimate our spiritual enemy, and we don't want to overestimate our spiritual enemy. And we, we can struggle on one of those sides or the other. And lest we underestimate the prince of the power of the air, as he's called in Ephesians 2, Martin Luther reminds us in his famous hymn, which we're going to sing in a moment, he says this, For still our ancient foe does seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate, on earth is not his equal. So part of Revelation has been written to make sure that we do not underestimate the spiritual battle that we're in, the spiritual enemy that faces us. And yet with this can come an overcorrecting of the car, as it were, where we start to overestimate his power. At times it can seem like his craftiness and cruelty is so widespread that it leaves one struggling to understand how God can bring his purposes to pass in our life and in the world. But this is where Christians, we live by faith and not by sight, which means that we allow the scriptures to be the lens through which we see reality and the future and the purposes and promises of God. So what verses one to three show us is that we must not overestimate the craft and cruelty of our ancient foe. So look at verses one to three again. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit. And a great chain. So he's got a key and a chain. And here's what he does with it. He sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan. So he gives all the names that have been used throughout Revelation so that you're not confused who it is. 
And he bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. So the imagery of this passage is pretty straightforward, pretty clear. There's actually not really any debate about the imagery of the passage. An angel of the Lord with a key and a chain binds the devilish dragon into the most maximum security prison that one can find. So this is a spiritual version of Alcatraz, as it were. What has been hotly debated and is not as clear is the meaning of the imagery of this passage. Now, I think I stand in good company when I say, I hope you understand that this is imagery and symbolism. We're not to think that a spiritual enemy can somehow be locked in a physical prison. You know, when you see angels in the Bible, locks don't seem like they're a problem for them, okay? So we understand that there's, there's imagery being used here. So without drowning us in all the details of the debate, I want to give you my answer to two of the main interpretive questions that are raised from this passage. So first question is, when does this binding take place? When did or does this binding of the dragon take place? Now, there's two views. One view is that this binding is future, that Revelation 20 follows Revelation 19 chronologically. It's pointing to a future date where Christ is going to come, and at his second coming sometime in the future, he's going to bind Satan for a literal thousand-year period. Now, another view is that this binding has already happened and is currently taking place, that Christ came in his first coming and through his life, death, and resurrection, bound the dragon in a specific way to restrain him from specific activity so that Christ can accomplish his purposes. And that Revelation 20 doesn't follow Revelation chronologically. It's actually a a recapitulation, you could say. It's a recovering of the same ground from a different angle. What Revelation 19 showed us is how God deals with the beast and the false prophet. And now Revelation 20 covers the same ground, but it's a different camera angle. Think of it like a sports stadium. You have multiple camera angles all over the place, and they're showing the same play from a different angle. And what Revelation 20 is showing us is covering the same ground, but it's showing us a camera angle of what does the Lord do to that ultimate spiritual enemy, Satan. Now, I take the second view that I mentioned, the fact that this binding has already happened, and it happened in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Now, the reason I take this view is is twofold. One is that I find the future binding of Satan and not deceiving the nations to be troublesome because of what we just read in verses 17 to 21 of chapter 19. Look there with me. So it, it says in Revelation 20 that Satan was bound so that he could not deceive the nations any longer. My question is, if we take chapter 20, following chronologically from Revelation 19, what nations are there to deceive? They've all been destroyed. Look at verses 17 to 21. Of chapter 19. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice. He called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who was in his presence, who had done signs by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast. And it goes on to say they're thrown a lake of fire, all these things. Now, my question is, if all the nations, the captains, great and small, everyone has been defeated and captured and taken care of, why do you need to bind Satan from deceiving the nations? So, so think of it like this. Imagine that my wife says, you know, I'm, I'm going to go on a diet, and I w- I'm going to eat no sugar. I want no sugar. All right? I'm, I'm going to cut out sugar. 
And there, let's say there's a lot of sugar in the house. There's, there's bluebell ice cream. There's birthday cake. And so I take it upon myself, to, because I love my wife, to eat all the bluebell, to eat all the birthday cake, to remove all the sugar from the house so that it's gone. Then once it's gone, I go and bind her hands and tape her mouth and say, honey, I'm doing this for your good so that you cannot eat any sugar. What would the point of binding her to stop from eating the sugar that is already gone be? It wouldn't make any sense. I think that's what happens when you take the chronological view. Satan is bound from a non-existent entity, nations to be deceived because they've been wiped out. So that's one reason why. The other reason I take the view that this happened at Christ's first coming is because this is the very thing Jesus said he did in his first coming. So turn with me. So hold your place in Revelation 20. We're going to go on a little tour of the Bible here. And turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 12. Matthew 12. I'm going to look at verses 25 to 29. Matthew 12, 25 to 29. What has just happened here is, is Jesus is performing miracles publicly. And the religious leaders are not denying that Jesus is doing miracles. They, they never deny one time the undeniable proof of the works that Jesus does. What they do say is, he is doing works by the power of Satan. They can't deny the reality of his miracles. What they can do is try to undermine it by saying it comes from a demonic power. And here's how Jesus responds to that argument. So starting in verse 25 of Matthew 12, knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan is casting out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now, here's the key verse, 29. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he does what? Unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. What is Jesus saying there? He's saying all of his miracles, all of the works he's doing in pushing back the effects of the fall and casting out demons in healing the blind and forgiving sins is a sign that the kingdom of God has come upon you, which means that the, the strong man who was there has been bound and Christ is now plundering the kingdom of darkness as he rescues one sinner after another. So in other verses in the Bible, the scriptures, they say the same thing. John 12, 31, Jesus says before he goes to the cross, now will you see the ruler of this world cast out. Then in Colossians 2, when when Paul is speaking of what happened at the cross, he said Jesus on the cross by nailing our record of sins to the cross has disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities of this present age. He disarmed them. So what Jesus and John and Paul are saying is that through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, he has, in a sense, bound the devil and he has begun plundering the kingdom of darkness. So that's why I believe it refers to what happened at Jesus' first coming. Now, question number two, what is Satan bound from? So when did his binding happen? And now what is Satan bound from? Now, again, there's two views here. One view is that the binding of Satan refers to a total cessation of all activity. The other view is that Satan is bound from a very specific and particular activity. Well, I take the specific and particular activity because, if you turn back to Revelation 20, of what is said in verse 3 and verse 8. 
I don't think that this passage speaks of a total and exhaustive cessation of all of Satan's activities because it speaks two purpose clauses of specific particular activity that Satan is bound from. So look at verse three. So he's bound, thrown into a pit, and it's shut and sealed. Why? So that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. I understand there are different views, and so this is, this is my take on it. You can, you can disagree with me. My take on this is that the specific particular activity that Satan has now been bound from is in the Old Testament, the light of God's knowledge was particularly given to one people, and the rest of the nations kind of sat in darkness. In fact, they sat in such darkness that what the prophets prophesied, like Isaiah 9, one of those Christmas texts we read, is that a light to the nations has shown. Those who walked in darkness shall see a great light. That it was prophesying the first coming of Christ. That something cataclysmic was going to shift when Christ came. That this nation, which had kind of, God's revelation, which had been restricted to this one nation, was now going to expand and spread and move far and wide. So when Christ comes, you start to see the nation start to be gathered in. And in fact, Matthew's gospel ends with a great commission. And the great commission is... Go and make disciples of all nations. It's sending the light of the gospel out to all the nations. When Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, speaks of his ministry, he speaks of it this way. Turn with me. You have to see this for yourself so you don't think I'm just pulling the wool over your eyes. Go to Acts 26. Acts 26. We're playing Bible hopscotch this morning, so keep up. Okay. Acts 26, verse 15 to 18. So Paul is defending before Roman authorities as he stands trial for his very life what he was called to do. And he says this in Acts 26, verse 15. He's speaking of his conversion on the Damascus Road when Jesus appears to him. He said, and I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but rise and stand upon your feet. For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, verse 18, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive the forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. In other words, what Paul is saying there is my ministry was to take this light of the knowledge of the glory of God shining in the face of Jesus Christ and bring it to the nations, which he did in Corinth and Ephesus and Colossae and Rome even now. And what is happening is that through the gospel going forth, the kingdom of darkness is being plundered as sinners from every tribe and tongue and language and nation are being rescued and brought into the kingdom of light. And if you want evidence that that Satan has been bound from deceiving the nations, which were previously deceived and walking in ignorance, just look at your own testimony. You are, as far as I can tell, I think we have one exception here. You are a Gentile. You were left out of the nation of Israel. You're not an uh, an Israelite by birth. And yet God has brought you in. The gospel has gone forth. And think how miraculous the gospel going forth to the nations is. It started with a carpenter from Nazareth who called some professional fishermen a hated tax collector and a zealot, political zealot, got them together and thought this was a good idea in the first place, trained them up, and then sent them out amidst a hostile, oppressive, and powerful world, namely the Roman Empire. And the gospel is here today in a place like Jupiter, Florida, and in places like uh, 
Korea and China and Africa, all over the world. In other words, this promise that Satan is bound, or this statement that Satan is bound, is a statement that he cannot stop the advance of the gospel as Christ gathers his people from every tribe and language and tongue and nation. It's another way of saying what Jesus said in Matthew 16, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not be able to prevail against it. The church is going to advance against the kingdom of darkness and it is going to bring people in from all over the globe such that when we get to heaven, we will worship with an innumerable throng that is from all over the globe. Now go back to Revelation 20. And notice there's a second purpose statement that reinforces this, but gives kind of another angle to this. So verse three, he might not deceive the nations any longer. Well, verse eight, why does he want to deceive the nations? What does he want to deceive them to do? Verse eight, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. So I believe Satan is bound from the specific activity of gathering a unified global army that would come together collectively to oppose and stop the church. And Christ has said, your time is not yet. You cannot do that purpose for which your heart desires. It, the parallel I think of this is in Jesus' public ministry. In Jesus' public ministry, right when Jesus came onto the scene, Satan would have loved to do nothing other than stop Christ right away. He would have loved to incite the religious leaders right away to arrest Jesus and put him to death. And they tried and tried and tried. And Jesus said, my time has not yet come. My time has not yet come. They were withheld from that purpose until the moment that Christ said, okay, now you can. When Christ was taken captive by the soldiers in the Garden of Gethsemane, it wasn't because he ran out of options and didn't know where to go. It was because he said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. Now is the time. That's what's going on with the binding of Satan. The binding of Satan is, is stated in such strong terms to say, Satan cannot do what he purposes until Christ says, okay, now you can, and I'll actually let you trip on your own trap. So that's what this binding, Satan is bound from stopping the advance of the gospel, from gathering a global army to stop the church. He cannot incite the great battle. So for now, it's only sporadic, it's only fragmented opposition. Now, what does this mean? This section is meant to help us not overestimate the power of the evil one and underestimate the present reign of Christ who sits at his father's right hand on the throne. So many times we can easily be overcome by a spiritual cynicism and pessimism. We become like a, a spiritual Eeyore or a spiritual puddleglum. We kind of look around at our circumstances and we say, you know, no, nothing good is going to happen. The, the church cannot advance. There, there's no hope here. But we have to know, despite the opposition we face, externally and internally, you should have a holy optimism. Christians should have a holy optimism that is infused with a knowledge of Christ on his throne and the promises that he gives to his church. When it comes to missions and evangelism, we should have a holy optimism because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Christ will have the prize for which he died, an inheritance of nations. When it comes to our own spiritual growth and godliness, we should have a holy optimism because he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion. He who loved us sent his spirit to dwell in us and he will not fail in his work to make us like himself. When it comes to our own understanding of the church and its growth, we should have a holy optimism that despite what goes on in culture, despite the circumstances we see externally, Christ will not fail to fulfill his promise that the church will be built 
on the gates of hell and against the gates of hell. Why should Christians have a defeatist mentality when Christ has defeated death and the grave and sin and has crushed the serpent under his feet? Well, now we're going to move on to section number two. More could be said about that. And um, if you have questions about it, you can ask me later. But everyone's entitled to the wrong opinion. Okay. All right. Verses four and six. So as we move to verses four and six, we move from the binding of Satan to now seeing the souls of those who have been beheaded for their testimony to Christ and all those who are faithful to him. And from our perspective, as we look on earth, it would seem to us at times that the persecution that the world, that the church faces, that the opposition it faces from the world, surely that would frustrate and hinder the purposes of God, would it not? When you read about even in the last century, there's been more Christians killed for their faith than in all the previous 19th centuries combined. It makes you think that surely persecution can frustrate the purposes of God. And yet, verse four to six says that's not the case. So in verse four, we have two groups of people identified for us. So look at verse four. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshiped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So there's two groups of people. The first group is a group of martyrs. So think of Stephen in Acts 7, who was killed for his faith in Christ. The second group is faithful believers who had endured opposition from the world and had remained faithful to Christ under all the trials, all the persecution that they face. Now, now taken together, these two groups represent the church of Jesus Christ, faithful followers of the Lamb who have had to go through the valley of the shadow of death and who have come out the other side and remain faithful to the Lord and have been brought into his presence. Now, why does John bring up this audience? Well, because for his original audience, the identification of this group would have been very personal because of what they were enduring at the time he was writing. There would have been names and faces with each of these groups that they knew of very personally because of what they were enduring at that time. And many believers in John's day would have been left wondering, well, what's happened to our beloved brothers and sisters in Christ who did not love their lives even to the point of death, who were faithful to the very end despite all that they faced in this world? And they've been left thinking, was their death a victory for the persecuting world and and a defeat for the church? Did, Did the gates of hell advance against the church? And now John answers those questions. And he answers those questions in a kind of comforting paradox. So John points out some, some irony, some paradoxes that, it, that it, we need to note. So John points out that these faithful believers are sitting in a particular place right now. And they're doing a particular activity with Christ. Look at verse four. Then I saw thrones. Every time we see thrones in Revelation, we're to think of the Father and the Lamb, and we're to think of the heavenly reign of God and of Christ. And what are these People doing sitting on these thrones? Well, it says in verse six, if you look there with me, very end, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So these faithful believers are sitting on thrones, reigning with Christ. Now, in effect, John is saying the persecuting world may have thought that they put them down, that they silenced them, that they stopped them. But in effect, they've only lifted them up to sit on thrones far above all earthly thrones and to reign with Christ who has a rule that is above every other rule. In a sense, he's saying, 
Your brothers and sisters who've been persecuted and face opposition, they have never been safer and in a better place than they are now because they are in the immediate presence of the risen Christ who is ruling and reigning. That's what the thrones and the reigning means. Now notice what else John says in another paradox. Look at the end of verse four. He says of these saints, he said, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So notice the paradox. Those who had been beheaded for their testimony to Christ, okay, that was one of the forms of persecution in that day, literally taking off your head, the idea of like silencing you because you, you spoke against the government, you spoke against the dominant religion of the day. And yet these ones who had lost their heads for testimony to Christ, what's happened to them? They came to life. You see the paradox? The persecuting world thought they had put them to death, but it only brought about their coming to life in the immediate presence of Christ. So in fact, John is saying, there's no need to worry about these faithful Christians who have gone before you. They have never been more alive than they are now in the presence of Christ. To die is gain for these believers. Now to add to that paradoxical comfort, notice the blessing that's pronounced in verse six over these faithful believers. It says, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Whenever the Bible pronounces a blessing, a benediction, the the favor of God resting upon someone, it does so in a way that it turns all the expectations of the world, all the evaluations of the world upside down. So think of the Beatitudes in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. The world would never look at the poor in spirit and say, you're blessed. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. The world would never look at someone persecuted and say, you're blessed. And in the kingdom of heaven, it inverts and flips upside down all the values of the world. And this blessing is no exception. So the persecuting world would look at these beheaded faithful believers and would describe them as anything other than blessed because of the deaths that they died. But from the vantage point of heaven, the Lord says they are blessed because they died in Christ, faithful to him, and to die in Christ is to truly rest in peace. They get to share in the first resurrection and will have no part in the second death, John says. Now here's where I think John is getting quite clever. Some might say quite confusing because he paradoxically states the first resurrection for believers and the second death for unbelievers. And when he speaks of the first resurrection, he's referring to the physical death of believers. The physical death of believers, he doesn't call it a death. He calls it a resurrection. The reason he describes it this way is because for the Christian, death has lost its sting. The grave has been defeated. So even when we do die physically, yet shall we live because we know him who is the resurrection and the life. And though we die, yet shall we live. Our bodies may go into the grave, awaiting the future final resurrection of glory into the new heavens and new earth, but we immediately do pass into glory, are made perfect in holiness and get to be with God. Christ. There is no interim period. There is no absent from the body, absent from the Lord. It's absent from the body with the Lord. There is no purgatory. There is only immediately entering into the glorious presence of the risen Christ. In other words, the death of a Christian is the death of all their sins, all their struggles, all their sorrows, and the resurrection of all their joy, all their rest, and all their comfort and peace. The Bible does not tell us much about the intermediate state. The intermediate state is that that time between the physical death of a believer and that final resurrection and the 
inauguration of the new creation, new heavens and new earth, when we get new glorified bodies. But it does tell us a few glorious things about it. In the intermediate period, when a believer dies, they will be immediately in the presence of the risen and glorious Christ in a way that they have never experienced here on this earth. When a believer dies, faith will become sight. They will no longer live by faith, they will live by sight. They will see in a way and know in a way that they have not known ever on earth. When a believer dies, they will be freed immediately from experiencing any and every effect of a fallen world and a fallen human heart. They will be made perfect in holiness, free from all the defects and effects of the fall. And when a believer dies, they will immediately get to share in some way, it doesn't describe exactly the way, but they'll get to share in some way in the joyful, glorious, heavenly reign of Christ. And most importantly, they will be with Christ immediately. So as John says, we will have the full assurance and comfort that when we die, we share in the first resurrection and we will never have to experience the second death. Now here's the other part of the paradox. Whereas the physical death of a Christian is paradoxically referred to as a resurrection, he says the final resurrection of one who has rejected, rebelled against Christ and remained in their sin is paradoxically referred to not as a resurrection, but as a second death. Life that is truly life, life that is eternal, abundant, real, lasting, joyful, is only found in Christ. And not even death in all of its forms can separate one who is in the love of Christ. They will only experience life. But outside of Christ, the wages of sin is death. So if you are outside of Christ, there is good news, though. Christ lived the life of obedience that you could never live, and he died the death that our debt of sin deserved, such that it was paid in full, a debt that we could never pay, and yet he pays it in full so that by trusting in Christ alone, you can have life and life abundantly. You will never know the second death. You will only know the first resurrection and the great resurrection to come. The only way to be spared from the second death is by knowing the one who died the death in our place. So we can be spared from the second death. Now let me, let me close with this. You've probably seen notice at this point that I've skipped over probably the, the most debated phrase in all this section, one that shows up many times. Six times in Revelation chapter 20, the phrase a thousand years is repeated. A thousand years, a thousand years. The Latin term for a thousand is millennium. So it's this idea of the millennium. So think of your Star Wars fan, the Millennium Falcon. The Millennium Falcon was called the Millennium Falcon because Han Solo believed it could last a millennium, even if it was a piece of junk. So this thousand years is referred to as the millennium, and Christians have literally spilled thousands of pages debating what this thousand years means, what's going to happen in it, when it happens, what it's about. Someone has actually joked that the millennium is a thousand years of peace that Christians like to fight about. Okay? <laughs> and for what it's worth, and I'm not going to get into all the different views, I'll, I'll share my view and I'll share the reasons for them. What it's worth, my view is that the the millennium is, in this passage, a symbolic reference to the time between Christ's first and second coming. So by symbolic, I mean that number of thousand, not to be taken literally. It's a symbolic reference to a a long period of time, the exact amount which is only known to the Lord, covers Christ's first to second coming, where Satan is bound 
from stopping the advance of the gospel and gathering a global army and where believers who have died in Christ get to rise and reign with him in heaven. That's what I believe the millennium is about. Now, the reason I say a symbolic time period rather than literal is because, as you've seen if you've been in this series for any uh, amount of time, is that the numbers of Revelation are highly symbolic. So when he uses the number seven, it's not trying to give us like a math equation. It's trying to say that seven, the number of fullness and completion and perfection. When it says 10, it's not giving us again like a numerical value. It's saying 10 is a number of strength and power and greatness, like 10 crowns on his head. The other reason I take this number as symbolic is that as far as I have scoured the scriptures and seen, every use of the number 1,000 is used symbolically. So for example, in 2 Peter 3.8, Peter says, do not count the Lord slow in fulfilling his promises because one day is as a thousand years to the Lord and a thousand years is as one day. Now again, Peter is not giving us a math equation for how we're to equate one day. He's saying time works differently for the Lord and what may seem slow to us or short to us is not the same with the Lord. He does not experience time as we, he is outside of time. Time is created entity that we deal with, not him. Or consider this example. In Psalm 50:10, the Lord says, every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on 1,000 hills. Now, we're going to take that very rigidly, literally, and say, if you can count 1,001 hills that has cattle on it, you get to claim the cattle on that, that 1,001 hill. It's yours because the Lord only, he stops at 1,000. He doesn't want any more cattle. He's, he's, he's full. No, I think it simply means a vast number that only God knows exactly that he can count. The millennium is not some future earthly reign of Christ where we witness the unfolding of the Left Behind series, okay? It's bad theology, bad fiction in my opinion. I don't see any evidence of that in the text here. What John is describing is the binding of Satan so he cannot stop the advance of the gospel and the reign of deceased saints in heaven. When he talks about thrones and souls, he's not talking about the earthly reign of saints. He's talking about the heavenly reign, even as they await the return of Christ. Rather, the millennium is about the reign of Christ now, as he puts all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be defeated is death. The millennium is about the binding of Satan now, as the gospel spreads to all nations, as Christ gathers his bride from every tribe and tongue and language and nation. And the millennium is about all believers who have gone before us resting and reigning with Christ now as they are seated with him in the heavenly places in the immediate glorious presence of Christ. And I understand we have to, we have to hold that. I hold that very loosely. I'm, I'm like 60-40 convinced of that, but I'm, I'm saying it like I'm 100% here because entertainment value. There is much in this world that frustrates us. We make plans, make promises, we set expectations, yet we face obstacles. There's unforeseen situations that foil and frustrate what we have purposed and promised to come to pass. But the ultimate thing I think we're to take away from this, whatever view we take, is that Christians can take great comfort and hope and encouragement that this experience of frustration for us is something that the Lord never experiences. Not one of his plans and promises and purposes can be frustrated. Because as Job said, when he understood even the devil's working in his own life, Job said, I understand that you can do all things and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. As the psalmist said in Psalm 115, the Lord sits in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. As the psalmist said in Psalm 2, all the nations can rage and conspire and the Lord, rather than being frustrated, he laughs because he has set his king on Zion, his holy hill. Or as Nebuchadnezzar found out, the dominion of Christ, 
not of any other nation, is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. And he can do all his will among the inhabitants of heaven. And among the inhabitants of the earth, no one can stop his hand or say to him, what have you done? The Lord is the holy, unfrustrated one. Let's pray.